Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. To begin, we acknowledge that we broadcast on unceded lands of the Wondery people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to any First Nations people that are listening in this afternoon. We acknowledge that First Nations people of this land are the first storytellers and acknowledge that, um, that that's a context in which we continue to, to share stories. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So we're going to be with you today until 2pm, which is quite a lot of time for both of us to be handling the mics. I'm so happy that you're actually there behind <laughs> the desk. We were talking about this before and I was I was like, but how do you make everything sound so good, Beth? Because I'm you just, do I don't know. And then I'm like, I can barely see over my computer and my notes. And you're like, I just turned it to the side. And I'm just like, it's a revelation. But it did take me a long time to actually turn the notes to the side. I'm like, how do you see over them? It's all been worth it just for this moment. Mm, learning experience. So I guess we should say what's coming up on the show today. Now she's mastered a deeply moving paired back style, creating small scenes of life through a child's eyes that hold a near uncanny resonance. Author of Past the Shallows and When the Night Comes, Favelle Parrott moves beyond the movie set, moving setting or moody setting of Tasmania in her first two books to bring us There Was Still Love, a book that in just over 200 pages spans the lives of Czech twins separated in the 1930s, one ricocheting to Melbourne and the life of a migrant far from her family, the other living through the Nazi occupation and communism. The stories largely told through the eyes of their respective grandchildren. Uh, Favour will join us later in the show to talk about this book and her ability to conjure up great feeling on the page. And coming up in just under 10 minutes, Angela Meyer, whose debut novel, uh, A Superior Spectre, came out last year and she joins us to talk about her latest foray. It is a Slim novella that um, really packs a literary punch. Um, Joan Smokes earned Angela the UK-based mislexia fiction gong, um, and once you've read it, you'll uh, you'll understand why. So excited to chat uh, to her all about that. And finally, we'll be talking about our reads of the year, which is really a terrifying thought to me. I mean, how do you pick? It's very hard. So hard. Well, we just picked a bunch. That's what we did. <laughs> This is what we read. Um, that's all coming up on Glass Story, Backhouse, Glass Story. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. You are listening to Triple R. It's a special double episode of Mel Cranenberg's Backstory and the Glass House. With the wonderful Beth AQ. Uh, now... Angela Meyer has worn many hats as a publisher with Echo. She ushered in Heather Morris's enormously successful Tattooist of Auschwitz, among many other books. These days, though, Angela is focusing on her own writing. Her debut novel, A Superior Spectre, came out last year, and Angela joins us now to talk about her latest foray, a tiny, slim novella that packs quite a punch. 
Joan Smokes, Angela Meyer. Welcome to Hello. Glass Story Backhouse. That's good. Whatever I'm calling it. <laughs> Welcome Thank to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is an, it's an amazing, it's, firstly, I have to say, uh, loving the cover of this book. Um, yeah, I love it too. It's a wonderful sort of like pale pink affair with like, you know, jaunty writing and all sorts of things going on. Um, but it's a, it's a really kind of quite a thoughtful interior type of book. Um, I want to talk a bit about how it came about. How did you start writing a novella and did you set out to write a novella? Or was it a short story that just grew wildly out of hand? I actually set out to write a novel, another novel. So I'd finished A Superior Spectre and I think it was around the time it was sort of going out to publishers to see if I could get it published. And um, I just started writing uh, Joan and I thought that it was going to be a novel, but I got about a couple thousand words in and I thought there's just not enough here. There aren't uh, enough characters. I sort of knew there was one main uh, thread of story that I wanted to explore and that it had a sort of past and present element in the story. Uh, yeah, limited range of characters. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm writing a novella, which I hadn't really written before. And so I looked into that a little bit and made sure I was sort of doing it right and just trusted that that was what it wanted to be. It's so interesting because they're like, it really does have that tautness of a short story, but you've got a little bit more space to tell it in. And I think this, this story really kind of, you know, worked in that form. Can you tell listeners a bit of what Joan Smokes is all about? Sure. So it's about a woman, uh, an Australian woman who has been living in the US with her um, American soldier husband and it's after World War II. They met in Brisbane uh, when the US soldiers were over here and um, when we meet her at the start of the book, she is actually alone and she's driving towards Las Vegas and it's the early 1960s and you know something really bad has happened because she completely wants to leave everything behind and create a new self basically. It's like a, a whole new beginning um, and she, yeah, she goes to find out, you know, what, what she can do in Vegas because it's, it's a sort of place where you can do that, where you can start over. Um, and it was a pretty interesting time in Vegas. There was a lot going on, um, including nuclear tests in the desert, um, which were still happening in the early sixties. And there's a wonderful image of her being taken to view, uh, a nuclear explosion. It's like a kind of public viewing event. Yeah, they were actually a, a tourist attraction, um, even in the, um, f more so in the 50s, but still in the early 60s. But uh, people even used to ask for like test facing rooms in the hotels and they had, you know, so that they could see the, the um, explosions in the desert, um, which is obviously very fascinating to us now. Um, but yeah, uh, that's, that's basically the um, premise and a lot sort of goes on with her transformation. Um, and Angela, this was the winner of the Miss Lexia Novella Award. Can you tell us a little bit about, I suppose, the award? It's a UK-based mm -hmm. award. Um, how you kind of got involved in, you know, knowing that it was on and, you know, obviously being the winner of it. Yeah, so Miss Lexia is a UK-based women's writing magazine um, and I'd followed them um, for several years um, and I entered one of their novel competitions many years ago and actually got long listed and that's a book that didn't really go anywhere 
Um, but I saw that they had a novella competition and I was about halfway through writing this at the time. So then I actually used that as a goal to have a sort of deadline to finish the novella. And I sent it to the competition and I got shortlisted and then I won and I just couldn't believe it. Um, it was incredible. And, um, with my novel, A Superior Spectre, coming out in the UK, the timing was actually incredible because I won the competition and then the novel came out and it sort of helped even with the publicity for that. And then my publisher over there, Sarah Band, ended up being the ones to publish Joan Smokes as a print book. Yeah, it's really... I. You know, it's interesting we've touched on some of the themes that are in this book because you've written another book that has a historical context in it yeah. as well and you've knitted in the historical context here so seamlessly. Really you're so inside this character's perspective that everything feels very natural even even though you're sort of throwing in these these details. I want to know how you've done that because this is a very pared back book. Uh, you mm. really are writing in quite a sort of, I think lyrical style is a maybe a wrong way um, of putting it because it feels it does really feel rhythmic, quite maybe, rhythmic yeah. I think it's quite a sparse um sparsely written book but with enormous emotional impact uh how have you done that and also managed to fit in an entire sort of you know like era's worth of detail mm. into these tiny little tiny oh, little I, pieces? I feel like I'm still just always always learning as a writer um but I've definitely come to realise that having just enough detail is often, um, in terms of the detail of, of the room and and the care what they're wearing and things like that, but also of the emotions of the characters and the things that they're noticing. Um, and a lot of it obviously happens in editing where you just go and you sort of remove a line where you've said the same thing twice or you've, or you've, just, you've just given a bit too much um, because I think that giving just enough does help to create that sort of depth of emotional resonance for the reader um, because it invites them to to meet the text halfway. Uh, I hope that makes sense. Um, and it's the same with, yeah, the details of the room. It's like if you describe the cornice in the room or the, the curtains, often a person can create the mm-hmm. rest of the picture themselves. They don't have to be weighed down by a lot of detail. Um, or it could be how something feels, like how her clothing feels on her rather than knowing the colour of it and the cut of it. Yeah, I think yeah. when you're describing her putting on the kind of showgirl outfits and, mm-hmm. and the heaviness of it, I'd never really considered that. The, these enormous headdresses and the, you know, the kind of jewel-studded sort of, you know, or like the yeah. dazzled sort of outfits just so heavy um, and the training that you'd have to do to wear that you've sort of really embodied yeah, they it. were so strong to wear those outfits besides you know kicking their legs up in the air like that and <laughs> um, but a lot of that I, I did do a fair bit of research but I didn't do um, deep research I don't know how to describe it it's like I was already looking for the particular details um, that would just capture it in in the way that I that I wanted it to be captured, yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit more about your, I suppose, your approach to to research and what that looks like for something like for this book? Sure. So usually if I have an idea that that is historical and requires research, I'll do some of it beforehand um, because I usually can't start until I've got a certain amount of grounding. Um, But then I will begin writing without knowing everything and I'll just trust that if I need to find something out that I will 
I can go then at that point and go and look further into it um, and and find out more. So with the nuclear tests, for example, I didn't really know I was even bringing that in, but something I read, you know, um, showed me that that was such a, an element of that time and that place. Uh, and then I actually went on YouTube and I found video of one of the tests and that was so um, helpful because I could describe it as though I was sitting there, you know. Um, so the research can be um, books, but it's, I mean, obviously it's so great with the internet because we can also find a lot of the time uh, video and audio and all kind and diaries and all kinds of other things that can put us in that time period. If you just joined us, you're listening to a kind of really special uh, double episode of Backstory in the Glass House uh, with Mel Cranenberg and Beth AQ. And we're joined today by Angela Meyer, uh, who is the author of a new novella, Joan Smokes, uh, which won the Ms. Lexia Fiction Award, which is a huge deal over in the UK, leading to publication of this tiny little gem. Mm-hmm. Um Angela, I'd really love you, if you are feeling comfortable, to read a little bit of the book because sure. you have woven this, um, you know, as we've kind of expressed in these, this kind of almost redolent of flash fiction-y style, which makes sense because you've written a book of flash fiction before with mm-hmm. your first book, Captives. Um, I feel like you've sort of done that but extrapolated it out to a book form. Mm. Yeah. What's the flavour of that? I enjoy writing um, even with a longer book. Um, even a superior specter has fairly short chapters. That just seems to be something I do. All right, I'll read um, one of the short chapters here. She'd seen the Las Vegas Strip in a movie. It is just as technicolour in real life. The radio plays Be My Baby by the Renettes, and she flicks it off because love songs are ice. The lights make sound in her eyes. On one sign, the soprano crescendo of pink. On another, a swooshing fan of green-blue. Everything is tall. The buildings, the cars, waterfalls and feathers. It is orange desert dusk. She does not know where to go. The money has to stretch out until she gets a job. So where is the off-strip, less tall area where the workers live? But she could just pull in here, under this sparkling roof, and let the valet park the car. She could walk into that casino and play the games her father used to play in Brisbane. Swear like him, drink like him. Another dead man. Don't think about it. She's not dressed for the casino, she supposes. She will find a place to sleep and come out in the day and take care of that. She should probably swap out this old Anglia anyway, just in case anyone wants to find her. She feels confident she can disappear, here, change her name, Become tall. Send a letter to mother. Jack is dead. I am staying in America. No, lie. Past the strip and there's a more squat neon sign, buzzing pink. Vacancy, vacancy, vacancy. Pull up in front of the reception. Smooth down the hair around her part. Press lips together to spread any remaining lipstick. Push the door open and it jangles. Smile. 
That's Angela Meyer reading from Joan Smokes here on Triple R. Um, Angela, I'd love to kind of um, talk a little bit about your career and kind of contextualise, I suppose, your work as a writer. Sure. Um, I know that you've worked as an editor um, for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it kind of a bit of a departure to um, to, to focus more on your writing and to kind of take a step back um, from your editing work? No, it's been more simultaneous, I think. Um, so before I was an editor, I was a book reviewer and a book blogger. And before that, I worked for the book trade magazine, Books and Publishing. So I've kind of done various things all around the book industry, um, just obsessed with books, <laughs> obviously. Um, and I was working on a superior specter before I even got the role at Echo Publishing. So um and I started working in publishing part-time, actually, because I was still finishing the novel. Um, so the, the two lives have definitely been intertwined the whole way. Um, and now I'm freelancing as an editor, which I did partly make the decision so that I could balance the writing and editing a bit better um, and to basically just work on words rather than obviously when you work in-house at a publisher, there's a lot of other elements to the job which were incredible and I had such a great experience. But at this point, I needed more flexibility and balance. Um, So I'm really excited about that just to be working on other people's books and working on my own writing um, and having brought it down a bit smaller, I guess. Mm. Mm. How do you feel like your work as an editor kind of informs your own writing? Um, I think I've learnt so much from working with other writers and I I do teach writing a little bit as well. Um, like I recently taught for the Faber Academy Editing Your Own Writing, which was a very um, good course for me to teach. I felt like um, I was able to do that from coming at it from both sides. Um, but one of the main things I learnt about uh, working with the writers at Echo was about plot structure and about tension um, because I worked with a few – Not uh, it wasn't just them, but I worked with a few crime writers and – they're particularly good at um, yeah structure and and pacing, um, and they really taught me a lot. Um, and the other aspect of working at Echo was um, character. All of the writers I worked with had such different characters and different ways of working with character, and how the characters would intertwine with the plot, and how the characters themselves would give the the work tension. And so. I learned so much from that. So I think I'm very lucky in that I did have almost an extra kind of masterclass in writing just by working closely with writers. And I'm sure I will continue to learn a lot from the writers I work with. I am. I have to say, Angela, you're one of the the people uh, in this industry that has has to be incredibly busy across a ridiculous number of you know hats that you've worn. You were a publisher at Echo, which was an enormous mm-hmm. responsibility, but you were also in the meantime finishing off your own novels. Uh, I know you've got a very uh, because we've talked about this before that mm-hmm. you have a habit of writing uh, on a Saturday morning that is absolutely sacrosanct. I kind of really want to talk about this because this isn't often demystified for uh, people out there, knowing when and how to find the time to write. There's this great misapprehension that writers uh, have the leisure to just spend all of this time when they're writing. That is a luxury very few can afford. Absolutely. Um, It's certainly not something you have. Mm -hmm. I do want to know how have you managed to get these books done in the midst of that busy schedule and how are you working around it now? 
Yeah, so um, as I said, when I started at Echo, I was I was part-time, but I, wa- I was actually working full-time because I still worked in a bar a couple of nights. So income-wise, I've always had to work full-time. Um, but I found, yeah, that writing one day a week on Saturdays was very helpful um, because in the back of my mind on coming up Thursday, Friday, it was like what I was going to write next was already sort of building in my mind. So I think having a rhythm, um, even if it's not daily, if you can't do that, is can be helpful. Um, and then it, I've been freelance, freelancing for about a month now. Um, and the funniest thing I was thinking about it the other day is that I've only written as many words as when I was working in a structured full-time job. So some of us do we'll only write, you know, whatever we write. It, I know writers who write 3,000 words a day or something and look good for them. That is awesome. But not everyone is different. <laughs> good, you know, for good for them. <laughs> Stop showing off. No. <laughs> but everyone is different and you can push yourself and find out your limits and, and you know, give it a go, like as people do with mm. uh, NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, um, where you have to write 60,000 words in a month. But... I think, yeah, there's something to be said for finding your own sort of natural rhythms and planning around that and and being okay with that. Um, So it looks like keeping to one or two days a week probably for the writing Mm. will suit me just fine. And that's that difficulty, isn't it, when that time isn't paid time necessarily to say, you know, how do you actually make that uh, commitment? Mm, A priority and a commitment. It's hard and it did take me a long time, particularly to say to the people I live with, this is my time to write. Um, for some reason, there's a lot of shame associated with that um, because, well, if you're not getting paid for it up front, people just, yeah, they, they find it hard to take seriously. Um, it does help once you've been published, but, uh, I mean, it would be nice if people understood that there was a lot of work that goes in before you are published um, or you may not want to be published at all. You may be doing it because it's important to you and essential to your health, you know, as writing can be. Um, so I think maybe it is just in within yourself um, coming to terms with the fact it is important to you and that you do need that time. And then I guess finding that time in the week where you can sort of carve that out. Um, sometimes it might mean that you have to find a different space, but um, as like me, I do need complete quiet, but I do know writers who are okay sort of sitting in the corner of a room as long as no one talks to them. Um, actually, my partner and I recently figured out, um, I said something about I need I need like a hat so that, you know, even when you're not physically <laughs> writing on a laptop or a piece of paper, sometimes you're writing in your head mm-hmm. like you're going into it. I said I need to put on like a cap or something, like, like a thinking cap <laughs> so that you know not to, you know, ask if I want a cup of tea or something lovely that he does. But um, noise cancelling headphones, yeah, I think, are a pretty good yeah. indicator that you don't want anyone to like annoy you yeah. or offer you anything. That's right. Come near. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's, you might just need some sort of <laughs> signal. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not now. <laughs> yes. Mm. Um, look, it, we could just, de- it's such a tiny book that you've written here, but we could just definitely talk about it all day. 
uh, I do want people to sort of unpeel this book because it has a lot of surprises in it for such a slight, like slight, slim volume. It is anything but slight in terms of subject matter. Um, you've certainly created quite a character in your unnamed character who mm-hmm. has become the character of Joan. Joan. Um, it's really it was such a delight to sort of um, be able to see where your writing is travelling to now, Angela Meyer. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us Thank today. you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Our next guest joining us in studio, she's mastered a deeply moving paired back style, creating small scenes of life through a child's eyes that hold a near uncanny resonance. Author of Past the Shallows and When the Night Comes, Fable Parrot moves beyond the moody setting of Tasmania in her first two books to bring us there with Still Love, which is a book uh, in just over 200 pages that spans the lives of Czech twins um, that were separated in the dawn of Nazism in the 1930s. Uh, Fable, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's so great to be here. It's really nice to have you. It's been a real, um, yeah, it's been a real joy to kind of get into this book. Um, Maybe we can just, I suppose, start at the beginning. Tell us, I suppose, how this book came to be. I didn't um, expect to write this book. I was lost in Northland Shopping Centre, a place that I do not love. (laughs) And um, I found myself in front of this European deli. Inside, there were these Czech gherkins that I haven't seen since I was 16 I rang my brother. He told me to buy them all. They were dusty and like three ninety nine. They were warm. When I eventually got out of there and got to my car, I opened um, the one of the jars, took a bite of a gherkin. I just burst into tears. Mm. Um, and all I wanted to do was drive to this flat um, in East St Kilda, this deco flat that was my first heart home with my grandparents, my lovely grandparents there. They're long gone, so I couldn't do that. So I went to Faulkner Cemetery where they're buried instead and I haven't been there for a decade and I just sat with them and I just had a conversation, a one-way conversation, but I just said, please tell me everything because I know nothing about you and I'm sorry about that. I don't know how that's happened. One, I was young and you're self-absorbed. Two, they were the kind of people that never spoke about the past or themselves and now I want to know everything and I, I I can't speak to you. So I started what I thought would be a short story about gherkins. Check gherkins. Um, it kept coming. Then I had this young boy in Prague and he felt very alive and real and you know, running onto the page. And I, I, I couldn't – it wasn't a short story. It was more. It was much more. So it was this beautiful time – sitting in a room with my grandparents again Um, and I became a recluse because I didn't want to break that. Mm -hmm. I didn't want them to go away again. Um, You know, I've hardly seen my friends in the writing process a year and a half of just doing this every day, just wanting to be with the work um, and wanting to be with them essentially. Mm. It's it's so this ability that you have that I don't ascribe to this whole writer's channeling um, characters thing very often, but your work often makes me feel 
eerily like that's exactly that you are doing some kind of communing with the spirits um but i know that this is an you know is is part of your exacting process actually that that in fact part of that is almost like this carving away to find that um the thing that you feel is real in the writing that exactly um emotional truth is in all good fiction it's fiction it's made up but the emotions are real we feel them when we read good fiction the writer feels them lives them um my characters are very real to me harry and miles from past the shallows are still really real to me i can see them it's like they existed um and they they did exist it's like um you know, sometimes you're not sure what's a dream and what's real when you wake up. It's like that. L- Ludjek is really real, the young boy in Prague, to me. But something very lucky happened to me. About a, six months into the writing, my cousin from Prague, who I haven't seen for 25 years, found me on Facebook and messaged me. We're the same age. He grew up with his grandma. I grew up with mine. They're sisters. So mm. very much like mm-hmm. the book. I told him what I was doing. He said, I want to help. I want to be back in the flat with my bubby, with my grandma. So every day he'd message me um, on Facebook at about 5 p.m. when I was just finishing writing and he'd just be like, ask me questions. He was just desperately wanted to be back in the 80s. Um, I couldn't have done Communist Prague without him because... I didn't feel like I had the authority and I didn't want it to be a cliche of what we imagined growing up in communist Prague to be like. I want it to be ordinary life. Like if you look into the window of an apartment building in Prague in 1980, I wanted that. People are cooking, kids are going to school, sleeping, people fall in love, people die, people get married. It's very normal life. But I just didn't feel like I had permission. He gave me permission he was my first reader and um, I was so nervous because it had to be okay with him. And I got a message after about a week and he just said, I have been crying for four days. So mm-hmm. then I knew even though I'd made it up, something was right. Can you talk about that? Can you give a bit of an overview of the book? Because, of course, what has eventuated is a wonderful work of fiction um, and it's a very kind of interesting structure that you've evolved that sort of really encompasses some of what you've just discussed, this idea of uh, two parallel grandchildren growing up and trying to understand what has come before their existence, which is a weird time in childhood where you're suddenly like, hang about, uh, there was a life before me um, and yeah. not really knowing that. Can you can you discuss that? Yeah. So, as you said, there's there's two twin sisters. They're separated just before World War Two, um, 1938, just before the Munich Agreement. So, um, this really happened to my grandma. I don't know why. I'll never know why. Nobody knows. She never spoke about it. Nobody. There's some stories, but so I had to make that up. They're separated, and then they live the exact same life and I mean they lived in the same flat when I went to visit my grandma's sister in 1993 in Prague the flat was the flat that I grew up in the same lace curtains the same doily on the tv the same tapestry of Prague they had the same face the same golden garnet earrings the same streak of white hair the way they smoked was the same 
their mouths downturned the same. But they were separated since they were 16 and only saw each other maybe every decade if they were lucky. It was incredible. And I realised then in 93, my grandma never left Prague. Mm. She recreated it in this flat. Mm. Um, like many migrants at outside, they're trying to play this game of being Australian or British or whatever, and then at home they just want to be who they are. So in my case, it was Czech. She just wanted to be Czech. All the food was Czech. She'd let her hair down. She spoke in Czech. Um, yeah, so understanding these two women, these two women that held up the sky for, for their grandkids to keep them safe, the sacrifices for the future that they gave um, was what I was trying to do in this book. And these two women, these sisters are the heroines of this book. They are amazingly strong and they're, um, I wanted them to shine for the reader. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Triple R, uh, our wonderful combined episode of The Glass House and Backstory with Mel Cranenberg and Beth AQ. We're talking to author Favelle Parrott about her book, There Was Still Love, which is an amazingly, uh, an epic, which is somehow covered in just 200 pages that bridges, uh, you know, the Czech kind of, I guess, post Nazi or pre-Nazi occupation period right through to communism and spans that and a family that has evolved from someone who who left and, and came to Melbourne. This is, you know, a wonderful insight into the parallels of migrant experience, um, you know, that feeling that you've both escaped a fate that, that could have been, you know, incredibly difficult um, to one that was incredibly difficult uh it's there's a wonderful meeting of the two sisters at a certain point in this book um i hope i haven't given away too much of that but i feel it's one of those necessary moments and what you've just talked about uh earlier where you feel like their lives were paralleled in terms of how they tried to how they lived every day just in these you know this essential sort of connection with culture they also have both suffered uh in in ways that are related to their own experiences great yeah exactly um the big question really and and the question that these two sisters fight about is who has it worse the one that stays under a brutal communist regime but is at home speaks her language is at home in her city the place she was born place she understands or the one that is free but doesn't ever feel at home. And they would argue about this, my real grandma and my real great auntie. In the end, I think they just decided that it was just bloody sad for both of them and look how much time they missed out of each other's lives. They got six weeks every, you know, five years if they were lucky together and um, that's you know, it's crazy sad. Mm. So that was the end conclusion that I came to anyway, um, writing this book. Yeah, there is this real sense of, uh, I suppose, loss and sacrifice. And uh, yeah, I feel like that emotional truth of the sadness is it really comes through. Um, can you, I suppose, talk us through how you go about kind of humanising some of these um, these issues? It's, um, this was the hardest I've ever worked I've drafted more than I normally draft and I normally draft every scene a lot. So this one, 
every single scene is like 15 to 20 drafts until it's right and it's because my grandparents were there and I want it to be it had to be perfect for them but that's where you get all of the the words aren't on the page but the feelings all there on the page and it's hard to explain but you know it's like the iceberg underneath the words mm. on the page all that work the 20 drafts is there mm. all the feeling that I've put into those 20 drafts is there even though it's only 200 pages and it always <laughs> so disappointing when I finish because I feel like it should be 800 pages well, it's like, kind of like a TARDIS in a <laughs> sense isn't it it's this tiny thing and you're like it's a big world I know. that you created in this this small retelling I think um the other thing that of course you know has to be talked about when we talk about your writing is the fact that you really do approach things from the child voice and from a child view and that immediately presents both a a wonderful range of possibilities but also limitations because you know the understanding of the world is is you know is very specific when it comes to a child voice you don't go in for an all-knowing child either you know you do have these moments where you kind of give an adult version of that person a little bit later on like a little touch um why the child voice why this way of going about it it um it fascinates me it does create heaps of problems it creates spaces in the book because the child doesn't know everything can't tell the full story so the reader is able to bring their own story into the work I think their own memories their own they're trying to work it out too just like the child is just like I am as the writer trying to work it out at the same time as these children are trying to work out what's going on what's going on with adults because the children can pick up on all of this energy they know something's going on they just don't know the exact details but they can pick up on sadness on secrets on fear all of these things that are happening, they're very observant and that's brilliant to be this little barometer, you know, like watching what's happening. It's um, kind of the feeling in your, in your stories is this sense of, you know, your parents' story affects you. It's, it's almost like that, you know, you're giving a direct sort of understanding of inherited trauma without spelling it out. Yeah. You know, a lot of your books have that underlying theme of, an, of a parent's um, experiences of life or something awful that's happened to them um, you know, bearing down on the children. Why why do you think you're interested in this? I I I mean, I think we're all trying to work out ourselves, you know, through art. Mm. Most artists are are trying to do that. Um, I'm fascinated by this, you know, children are helpless in many ways because they're um, stuck with their parents' or guardians' decisions. You know, if, like, for example, this character Lujek his mum, to be free, travels for 11 months of the year and he's happy for her. But he's terribly sad at the same time because she's gone and he's got this terrible fear, feeling that she's never going to come home, um, that she's going to choose freedom. Um, he carries that, you know, he tries to run from it, he tries to keep himself busy, but it's there underneath. Um and he can't I, articulate yeah, it and really. He's, you know, that's you've kind of expressed in here that the reason he's left behind is because she's not allowed to leave no, otherwise. And it's, yeah. So that's the horror of the regime that you're sort of slipping into these everyday kind of ideas and it's, understanding. Yeah, it's one of the biggest crimes of that time is that, you know, you could leave Czechoslovakia, but you paid a huge price. You left 
hostages behind. Often they were your parents that you might never see again. Elderly people were left completely by a lot of younger generation to fend for themselves, older ladies, women especially, um, which I've tried to sort of put in the book without explaining why this woman's left on her own. There's just this very old lady that is trying, you know, it's very life is very hard for her. But, yeah, to, to have this hostage situation... It's quite it, – and it worked very well. People came home because, you know, they'd left loved ones behind. Mm. Uh, I really – honestly, every time I've talked to you, um, Favelle, about your books, um, I found so much – so much more in it than I can possibly fit into a, a short interview. I, I am tempted to ask what uh, what was it like leaving the island, so to speak? You've written Tasmania in a way that I can only describe as incredibly haunting. Um, it feels as though you are haunted in some ways by that yes. place. It's, yes. I mean, it's incredible. I've I've gone back and I've I've read over those books to you know while in Tasmania to kind of get that sense, um, you know, that you sort of feel all of the elements that are under under the ground there um and of course the water is a big theme mm. how did it feel to sort of move away from that setting it was uh, it really surprised me I let myself off the hook because I was 100% convinced that this book would never be published and it was just a passion piece mm. and I was doing it for my grandparents so I had this sort of freedom of not worrying about what you know people who liked my first two books might think or even my publishers and then when they liked it I was really surprised and I sort of felt like I had to apologize to people and say there's no water in this book <laughs> not one drop <laughs> no Tasmania no water <laughs> no, no. so um I'd probably go back to Tasmania again because it's still in me there's still things that um I have to say about that place it does feel like you haven't finished with it I no. mean it's it, there's a lot and, I, and I'm interested actually do you feel like at any stage you're going to um have your voice kind of grow up, grow into a sort of more adult understanding? I, I feel like that's coming. I feel like that that's next. I might have understood what I can for now about the the child experience. And, um, yeah, I feel like um, the next book might even be a bigger departure. But I don't know. I might never even write another book. I'd, at this point, you know, you just like, I don't know. I certainly <laughs> hope that is not the case. Um, Fable, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much. For Thank you. It's been really lovely. We've been chatting to Fable Parrot all about her new novel, There Was Still Love. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Beth AQ and Mel Cranenberg combining forces to bring you two hours of storytelling and book talk. Now, this is the moment that I have been, if I'm completely honest, slightly dreading uh, our best reads of 2019. This is one of those expectations that happens when you have a show about storytelling or books uh, and you read a lot. People think that you can readily come up with a, a best reads list or a favorites list and frankly it's a monstrous thing to be asked to do some people love it I'm not I'm not gonna lie people love a list mm. uh, but I find it really hard because I feel like I get different things from different books um, I also read a lot specifically for the show so I'm reading in a different way when I'm reading to talk to someone than I I am when I'm reading just for my own 
enjoyment or to catch up on a particular topic or yeah it's really hard yeah I mean I feel exactly the same way in the sense that I'm often reading for the program and yeah it's I suppose it's a different yeah it's a different kind of reading than when you're following your natural curiosities of what you want to read but in saying that obviously a lot of the shows a lot of the books that I read for the show are you know huge favorites because we do get um you know a huge say in the programming of our Mm, programs absolutely I feel like uh we do have a list of books that we might want to talk about uh it's a big list it's a big list (laughs) this is far from definitive and I I feel like this is a really strange thing to say considering I do average about two books a week um you know just in terms of reading for the show and other worky related things but I often feel like I, there are gaps in my reading in terms of what's out and what I'd like to read. So I'm extremely excited when someone whose opinion I respect as much as yours, Beth, uh, tells me what books they've enjoyed. So I'm looking forward to hearing. Should we touch on a few each? Yeah. Um, I suppose for me something that's been really great about doing my show is that I've gotten to Uh, delve a little bit more into graphic novels, which is kind of something that I I haven't really read a lot of before. But yeah, and there's two people that have been on the show this year that I think have really stood out. Um, The first one is Fury, um, a graphic novel uh, about, it's called I Don't Understand How Emotions Work. Um, And yeah, it's a really, it's a really beautiful and kind of uh, at times kind of heart-wrenching Um, work that is about the process of getting diagnosed um, with gender dysphoria and, you know, what that kind of looks like on an interpersonal level and then also kind of what it looks like when you're interacting with a, you know, medical system that um, has perhaps quite rigid ideas of what, what gender is. And it's just really beautifully done. And yeah, I just, I just really loved it. A huge, a huge favourite of mine. And then also a second graphic novel that I really liked was um, Mandy Ord's um, When One Person Dies, The Whole World Is Over, which is just really uh, a work that I suppose attempts to record the minutia of life. Mm. And that could be um, anything from, uh, I don't know, picking a booger when you're at home alone or something. <laughs> it's That's not even in the book. I was just trying to think of something. But, you know, these like small moments that it's are very so... very specific thing that you just thought of. <laughs> I don't know why. But, you know, these like tiny moments that are so telling of like who we are and what we do behind closed doors and um, the ways that we relate to one another, like her partner is um, a very big kind of character throughout the book, as are her pets. Um, And, yeah, there's a lot of uh, themes around like love and loss and, yeah, it's just it's really beautiful. And, yeah, for me it's kind of new to be reading graphic novels and, yeah, those are two big ones for me. The nuance of that is really interesting as well, isn't it, because you kind of think that there's that interaction of the image and the word um, is inverted in the graphic novel as opposed to novels that rely on words. Mm. You're feeling like, you know, how much can I tell in the picture and what necessary words should I include? Totally. Some of the best graphic novels hardly have any mm. uh, Yeah, and, and I suppose like in, I don't know, similar way to books, but like understanding the uh, the importance of space and the importance of like the way that uh, the things that aren't said and like mm. what's not in that small Uh, you know, square of image, like what's outside of that and what you can kind of, you know, read between the panels and, um, yeah, and also just the way that the text relates to the picture. 
sort of interesting because, uh, you know, talking to Favel earlier, there was that discussion of what isn't on the page. And I have started to feel like that's a really necessary part of reading is what what has been left out and trusting your reader to kind of understand those things. Those books do tend to sort of really attract me. I've noticed uh, that you have included on your list, which I can cheat and see a little bit <laughs> of here, um, Jess Hill's See What You Made Me Do. Uh, it's a book that I know uh, you actually got to talk to Jess Hill, um, which is wonderful. I get to listen as a listener to an excellent interview. Um, what did you think of that book? I It's incredibly difficult to read, like huge uh, trigger warning for domestic abuse, you know, physical sexual abuse. Um, but I think it's really, you know, an important read. And I think that, you know, we're kind of having one of those moments at the moment with, you know, Me Too and people are you know, really, I suppose, ready to hear these stories. And what she does so well, I think, is really looking at um, as hard as it is to read this, like thinking about the perpetrator and why there are so many perpetrators and, you know, why they're doing this, how they're doing this, how we can potentially try to rectify this huge social issue that, you know, hasn't really been addressed um, in, in many ways for a really long time. And, uh, yeah, and it's really just like clear, fantastic journalism mm. as well. That's definitely on my necessary read list and I noticed it's just been shortlisted for the Victorian mm. um, Premier's Literary Awards in the non-fiction category and I would say a very strong contender to win that category and deservedly so. Important piece of journalism, really excellently written with great sensitivity and heart. Um, yeah, it is a must read but a pained read for mm. many people and again that content warning is well worth heeding yeah 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 wouldn't recommend reading it in a in a week which is what i did yeah. <laughs> it's a terrible idea but it's what happened what else is on your list Beth? um i suppose in talking you know on the show i look at a lot of non-fiction but i'm just generally interested in reading non-fiction um Beru's bashani's no friend but the mountains writing from manus prison came out this year Obviously, just an incredibly important book. Um, I just, yeah, I don't even really know what to say about it. it was it? It was released this year, right? Yeah, it, yeah, it, it was, was the winner the, of was the, the winner of the yeah, very memorably. Yeah, I just feel like it should just be kind of required reading for anybody that lives in this country under this current government. It's also, you know, just a fantastically woven book it I is mean, like the poetry is... behind the the way that he writes is just absolutely it's it's very beautiful about something that is so harrowing and you know a huge shame on our, our Australian government for letting this happen yeah his anger is undeniable and and totally justified but the the writing itself is just elegant and uh, really uh, such a heartbreaking thought that he's not an author that we have made our own um it is one of the great shames of the Australian government policy, apart from all of it, <laughs> um, <laughs> that that you know that these things are done on our watch. Mm. Anyway, but yeah, I think it's like definitely a book that I would, yeah, highly recommend to everybody to read. Just to I think yeah, getting that kind of fir- that first person account of the condition, the living conditions of what it's like on Manus and what it's been like for many years what's been happening while, you know, it hasn't been in the headlines every day. It's just, yeah, it's a really important one of our times, I think. You have another book on, in fact, all of your nonfiction. <laughs> I've uh, got a lot. <laughs> I think I'm pretty much just like cut, paste, cut, paste. Yes, that is also my favourite. Um, you've got Dear Tolentino's Trick Mirror. Yes, who was obviously out here recently for Broadside. Um, 
I had heard a lot of, of amazing things about her and she definitely didn't fail to live up to the amazingness. Um, yeah, essays on self-delusion and just, you know, our relationship with the internet and ourselves and bodies and womanhood and just so much good stuff in there. She's just so brilliant and insightful. It's such a great modern feminist book. Um, I loved it and uh, immediately just went, how the frig old are you? <laughs> like to just have that depth of understanding and knowledge. She's 30. Oh, God. Because in one of her essays, so I think she talks about being around 30. But, yeah, yeah she's incredible. She's so good. It's just so good. And I think what we do need are a lot of these galvanising voices that give us a contextualisation that people can really understand. I think one of my great themes as well for this year is this, um, you know, bridging the the feminist understanding or misunderstanding, I think it's in the interests of those who wield power to sort of um, really, you know, engage with separating people from coming to under common understandings. And so it's wonderful to read books that really, you know, just nail um, giving a sense of what it's like to be, you know, not male in this world. Uh, yeah, that is definitely a book that's very much worth reading. Mm, fantastic book of essays. Um do you want to tell me some of yours or should I keep going? I feel oh, like my list at, is too long. <laughs> no, I think this is great. This is great for me. I love getting recommendations. You all love getting recommendations, don't you, listeners? I love getting recommendations. It's greatest. Keep going. Don't stop. Um, Alana Savage, who I was lucky enough to interview this year, who I think is just a really phenomenal writer, local writer, um, put out her essay, Yellow City, which um, I suppose looks at you know issues around sexual assault and what it looks like to... Um, report that and she's just she's just an excellent writer it's a very engaging um, piece of work and it's very topical Um, yeah and it's also very uh, yeah it's it's always you know kind of hard to read how these encounters of you know sexual assault sexual violence attempted you know rape um, are seen in the eyes of the people that we're meant to report these things to and what it looks like to um yeah, navigate those systems. It's it's uh, yeah, it's tricky. It's tri- again another tricky one to read. I obviously um, love reading things that are really hard to read, but it's you know it's again I think it's really the necessary timely. books. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think Alana Savage is you know one of my favourites yeah. writers in general. But yeah, great essay, amazing essayist, and this wonderful melding of um, you know pulling in imagery as well. That's an incredible you know piece of work. You have another couple I know that you'd like yeah. to talk about. And then, then I'm done. My, I suppose, top two fiction would be um, Ocean Vung's On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous and then Tony Birch's The White Girl, two both incredible, um, yeah, writers. Like Ocean Vung is, is, you know, mainly a poet. I think that this is his first foray into writing a novel um, and, yeah, would highly recommend both of them. Oh my God, just join our Summer Reads Book Club because I'm going to be like all of the ones I, I haven't yet had a chance to my read. Book stand. My book so yeah, there's, there's a lot. Thanks for giving me more to add. <laughs> I'm very happy about it. Um, talk to me about some of your faves. Look, uh, I, to start with, because I've talked to a lot of novelists, Australian novelists on my show, so my reading has been very focused on that. And, you know, obviously I, you know, it's so hard uh, when you engage so completely with so many books and then get to talk to their authors, which is such a privilege. I mean, you know, when you read something and you're like, pretty much we're best friends now. Uh, So yeah, uh, I guess I'm going to be talking to you about it. And then you actually are, and it's not all in your head. Mm. That's sort of wonderful. So that's one of those great things. A few of those books um, that have really moved me or, um, you know, just 
ones that I've I've kept along and would like people to consider reading are Alice Bishop's Constant Hum, which is her kind of fictionalisation of experiences uh, of the Black Saturday bushfire in the, you know, years afterwards. And she sort of takes you through the stories from just after the fires to five years on to 10 years on. Uh, And it's incredibly, you know, she channels these voices. She's managed to kind of base them on interviews and get people to sort of really open up in ways that they probably wouldn't have if it was a direct work of nonfiction. It really shows you that wonderful power that fiction has to blur those lines uh, and allow people to sort of tell stories that they wouldn't necessarily otherwise. Also, Alice Bishop is just an amazingly beautiful writer there's a great sense of you know in a debut um, like this just this sense of ownership of language and uh, perspective she shifts from the first person to the third person to you know third uh, and everything in between uh, throughout the book um, employs different writerly techniques and um, really manages to bring out these small kind of uh, you know images that I can't quite shake from my head like uh, you know someone kind of in a room filled with flowers and food and as soon as I hear that I think death Um, she's managed to pull out those kind of small evidences of grief and loss without over relying on some of the very evident trauma um, that you could really focus on in a book like that it's really fantastic and I feel I should almost mention in the same breath Josephine Rose here until August there's something of um I feel a tonal similarity between those two writers and I was uh, not then surprised to see Alice Bishop at Josephine Rose Book Launch, um, (laughs) which was a wonderful thing to see that we have this great um, body of local writers. Josephine Rowe is an author whose uh, career I've been following um, since the beginning. (laughs) She has, you know, really this this ability to, again, as as the authors that we've talked to today um, have of putting um, so much into such a tiny space. Her pieces of writing, though, are just, I mean, she's an extraordinary craftsperson you know, craftswoman, she manages to get this sense of um, language that I rarely see uh, in any modern writers where she does, she's not afraid of going for a sort of polysyllabic word, um, of allowing you to sit with the meaning of that, um, you know, exploring kind of complicated um, philosophical meanderings, just really letting her characters go there in this very, you know, intelligent and interesting style. She, nothing in this is dumbed down and you are like left to kind of work out where you are, but it is, you want to be there. It is beautiful writing uh, and really, uh, I think, um, going to stand the test of time. She's going to be one of those truly international writers that we've produced, I believe, uh, just an excellent uh, writer. Anna Crean's Act of Grace, her first novel, uh, she's of course known as a non-fiction writer largely, uh, very much her journalism has been um, something that has driven her writing and her narrative non-fiction is, you know, very, it's excellent and has won awards, uh, deservedly so. Act of Grace is born of, I guess, that sort of level of research. We were talking about this a bit um, before, Beth, that um, that she is one of those writers that came to an act of fiction by you know, just extreme research. <laughs> so Act of Grace is uh, sort of starts off from the perspective of a uh, Iraq war veteran who's um, really messed up by the war and has become a perpetrator of family violence and 
you sort of start to get the sense of why that is. And it has a lot to do with the title. I don't want to give too much away. But the story then, the narrative baton is passed on to uh, a young girl growing up in, um, you know, in Saddam's Iraq. And she then fictionalizes Saddam Hussein and his son O'Day. And then we get into a third character's perspective, a young Indigenous woman who's coming to terms with her family legacy um, and also the child of the Iraq War veteran. She's managed to wind in all of these stories uh, in very complicated, exacting detail. Um, she even writes, I think, in the section um, set in Iraq, there's a, a kind of minor character uh, who, who's a poet and she writes a piece of poetry from their perspective, which I thought was like, mm. oh my God, it's a truly epic uh, work. And uh, again, this one's been listed for... Uh, one of for the fiction prize in the VPLAs, and I think is a very strong contender. Very quickly, another two because we're running out of time. Lucy Trelaw's Wolf Island, just um, a kind of climate dystopia, if you like, um, set in this um, sort of strange, strange kind of island archipelago. Um, off the southern states of the United States, which is apparently a real place but feels very otherworldly. Um, she has this, you know, spare sort of elegant style that's incredibly beautiful uh, and worth spending time with. And Joey Bowie's Lucky Ticket collection of short stories, again, a debut collection by just someone who feels like they have been writing forever, um, a young author who is just definitely going to do great things. And that's a, a really, you know, wonderful short story collection. Um, yeah, I have a list of side reads that include uh, some of what we talked about. Catch and Kill, I know it's a huge kind of international book, um, but I actually got up, couldn't sleep, uh, 3 a.m. Um, and just decided to pick it up as a go-to-sleep read and then 8 a.m. <laughs> finished it. That's amazing. You it, just read the whole I night. I just read the whole night. It's just he's managed to get, um, you know, his – sort of retelling of trying to get the story that, you know, eventually became, the, you know, one of the powerful, impactful forces as well as the work of other journalists very much so um, behind the Me Too movement um, and exposing a lot of that, exposing just how the NBC maybe tried to stymie that and all these other things, all wrapped up in a sort of like, you know, um, almost spy thriller where he's getting like spied upon by this, you know, kind of ex Mossad sort of like-esque um, agency that's that's been hired to keep tabs on him and he's wound all that in in, in a kind of incredibly readable style um future histories lizzie o'shea another short listy for the vplas um great sort of work looking at history and how it matches up with technology um that's really interesting um and tyson you can put a sand talk uh, which is a really interesting look at um you know an indigenous approach to looking at climate and um, trying to say, hey, look at it from this perspective as opposed to looking at us from an outsider's perspective. Uh, really interesting book. Um, yeah. Mm. Some of my list there. There's so many good ones. There's so many that I'm putting on my, my, my list, which is just getting longer and longer by the minute. Um, do you have anything that you're going to be you know, wanting to read the summer or is it just all of this? I just so many books. <laughs> I honestly, honestly, I don't even know where to start. I have to start. I don't get to read a lot of nonfiction. I'm just going to be diving headfirst in, you know, just hit me up on the socials. Tell me what to read. For God's sake, I have no idea where to start. I love it. There's too many. There's, I mean, it's great. It's, a, it's really a testament to the amount of great work that's coming out of 
um, this country, I think. I've got some catching up to do, mm. Beth. Um, it's almost time for us to get on out of here, um, but it's been an absolute bloody pleasure um, broadcasting with you today. Oh, my God. I've loved every minute I've of it. I've loved it. Our last show for 2019 for oh, both Backstory and The Glass House, but I'm sure you can expect um, some amazing broadcasters that are going to uh, be taking over the mic all summer, which I'm really excited to listen to. It's always so nice to hear, um, you know, different voices on air. Thank you for tuning in. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.